Um, I want us to step into God's Word. If you have a Bible, I'd love to have you go with me to Isaiah 61. The sermon notes in your bulletin will always be a help to you in knowing where we've been and where we're going. We're working our way through the book of Isaiah. The bread and butter of ministry here is preaching through Bible books, getting to know the Word of God. So believe that the Word of God is, is how our lives are changed. God uses His Word by His Spirit to, to shape us and sharpen us and point us to Christ. And we, we just keep doing that. Uh, this is our next to the last sermon from Isaiah. So uh, next Sunday, we will wrap it up. So two chapters next week, four, I know, no kidding, four today, but you'll understand how we do it in bigger picture form. But it's a kind of a unit, and I think you'll see why here in a couple of moments. Then on July 3rd, our preaching and the preaching at Central will coincide. It will line up. Uh, in both places, uh, we'll be preaching uh, 10 Psalms for the summer. We did this a number of years ago during the summer. Wanting to expose us to the different types of Psalms that are there, teaching Psalms and laments and praise and so many different elements, confession and forgiveness and so on, all represented in the Psalms. And so we're going to stay on the same text with the folks at Central from here on is our plan, so that as fall arrives and you come to one church or the other, uh, you'll hear the same uh, text preached, and then you can participate in your small group, which is a community group based on sermon preaching. So anyway, that gives you the idea. Um, before we step into God's Word, I want to uh, use a little tool that will introduce one of the main themes, okay? And that is a kid's book. Now, I'm going to do this in two parts. There's part of it that I'm going to refer to now, and then later, for those of you who remember Paul Harvey, I'm going to do the rest of the story at the conclusion of our time in God's Word. So you can wait for that to come. But this little book is called A Dad's Delight. It may be out of print, I'm not sure, because if you look for it on Amazon right now, it'll sell brand new for 50 bucks. And um, there are reasons for that, I suspect, it might relate to the rest of the story. But um, a dad's delight, it's, it's a fitting story for Father's Day, and I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to tell you certain parts of it. This is telling a story of a young guy by the name of Hank, um, and, and Hank is, oh my goodness, in this story he's six years old. He's named Hank Boston because his dad was from Boston and loved, well, a baseball team that had some guy named Hank, and if that's not enough of an obvious uh, you know, reminder of baseball players... So they named his, their kid Hank Boston. Um, well, okay, people said, really? Are you kidding? He said, no, that's really his name. So uh, he grew up loving baseball, this little guy. If you were all sitting closer, I'd show you the pictures. But he grew up loving baseball and throwing baseballs around and things like that. And some bigger siblings that knew how to play ball as well. By the time he was six, he was, he was working on pitching. No, really, he was. At age six, he's trying to throw a ball. And uh, man, this is a great time. And one day, in fact, on one of the older kids' teams, they needed a pitcher. And Hank got called up, so to speak, to the bigs, meaning the eight-year-olds. Whoa. And he threw two, two innings of no-hit baseball as a six-year-old, which is kind of a deal, I guess. Well, okay. His dad was a pastor in Chicago. And they lived in an upper-floor apartment above the church they served. And there was a big old cement wall there or brick part of the building, and there's a sign here in the window that says, no ball playing near the window. Well, Hank's got to work on his pitch, and there's a reason for this story. So Hank's working on his pitch one day, and he's doing pretty well until suddenly there's this crash. 
and he threw a ball through the window. Now, he goes inside, he knows what's coming. Mom sees him and says what moms used to say and not too many do anymore, I think. They said, yeah, Tammy knows, wait till your father gets home, which of course ruins the rest of the day if you're six. Uh, well, dad finally came home. He heard the van in the driveway. He thought, well, okay, I'm going to go get it. And so he goes to have a chat with his dad and is obviously guilty if you look at the artwork that goes along with it. Now, I want you to just think about this. Again, we're heading toward our, our main theme or one of our big themes here. Uh, away goes dad with Hank to talk downstairs. And they have a, a heart-to-heart, a father and a son. What do you say to your little six-year-old at this moment? What'd you say? As a Jesus-loving, gospel-loving dad. Well, don't ever do that again. There's a reason for rules. Uh, This is going to cost you for the rest of your life. Uh, What would you say? Well, Hank's dad, uh, I think, did a good job. He he did a number of things. He said, you know, Hank, um, shouldn't have done that. He broke the rule. Of course, I'm a dad, and you know what? I've broken some rules, too, in my life. I know something about breaking some rules. And even though I was sorry, I learned there was a penalty to be paid. He goes on right into the gospel. He says, but there was someone who made sure I didn't have to pay that debt. Hank says, that's Jesus, right? Dad said, that's right. Jesus paid for me so that I could be forgiven. So he said, you know what, Hank? Here's what we're going to do this time. I'll pay for the window, and you get to sign the ball like a ball player. And Dad took that ball and put it up on his shelf of baseball memorabilia. And it says this, Hank learned an important lesson that day, a lesson about a father's mercy. More than that, Hank learned that giving mercy was dad's delight. That's the name of the book, a dad's delight. Now in the back, again, as you hear the rest of the story later, these things all begin to to make sense. There's a verse in the back It's from Micah 7, verse 8, Old Testament, one of the prophets. It says, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Or if you go to the older phrases, who is a pardoning God like thee? And it speaks of that that love that God has. It says he delights to show mercy. The mercy term in the Old Testament in that text is a a Hebrew word that's well used. And I I don't do too many Greek and Hebrew words because I find them often unnecessary. This one's a good one, kind of helpful. It's the word chesed, kind of like clear your throat, chesed. And that's the name of the company that printed this book, which I suspect is their company. It's called the Chesed Foundation, okay? The Mercy Foundation. Loyal love, covenant faithfulness, all of that would translate that word from Hebrew. So a father's, a dad's delight. Now, don't, don't let that get too far. I'll be back to this at the end, I promise, because I want to give a little more context to the story that's told there. But that takes us to the text, because even though we're looking at a big unit today, four chapters, in this text, you'll, you'll find a reference to God as our father three times. You find it in chapter 63, verse 16, And chapter 64, verse 8. Oh God, you are our Father. There's a pleading, there's a calling upon the Father heart of God to care for his children. So all of that kind of weaves together 
with where we're going to go today. We're going to start in chapter 61. Sermon notes give you some ideas where we're going. 61 is kind of a unit, then 62 and half of 63 are another unit, and then the other half of 63 and chapter 64 are another unit as well. So we're going to touch on all three of those, but I'd love for us to step into God's word and here meet with him. So would you pray with me, please? And then we'll, we'll jump right in here to our study this morning. Our Father, how good it is to open the word of God. Uh, here, here we meet with you. And it is our prayer again, as always, that the spirit of God would use the word of God to, to deal with each of us right at the place where we need your help, your intervention. Father, some of us may be needing encouragement, maybe rebuke, coaching, help, uh, life, regeneration. Oh, Lord, you know where we're at. You know what our needs are. And would you today bring us each a step closer to you through our time in your word. So do what you love to do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at your sermon notes, of course, the elements of review that kind of help you uh, see where we have been and why over the past number of months of our study. <clears throat> comment on last week, and then a paragraph about today's text. Four chapters, four chapters that help us to see the heart of God for his people. So I'm going to step right to chapter 61. You see my three headings that are here, and I hope helpful to you. That first one, God's redemption is both a person and it is practical. So God's redemption is where we, where we come, first of all. We've been working with these big themes in the book of Isaiah, but I want to read, starting in chapter 61 and verse 1, and we'll read just a small part, and I'll remind you of why, okay? So God's word, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and we'll stop there. Why will we stop there? Because that's where Jesus stopped. As he was quoting this text, as told in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. You remember we've referenced this, mentioned it last week. Jesus, when he was here on earth, the four gospels telling his story, each with a little different angle to it. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, you find Jesus in a synagogue. He's invited to read from the prophet Isaiah. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, reads the part I just read, stops, rolls up the scroll again, hands it back to the attendant, and says to the quiet crowd, Today, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is identifying on that occasion that this text is about him. So when you would read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, that's me. That was about me. It was written about me. This text is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus then saying, in his first coming, he came to do those things. Now you from your understanding of the Bible uh, or, or things that you have yet to learn here today, the Bible describes the coming of Jesus in two different parts. So the first coming of Jesus, when he, when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, quite unlike the life that you and I have lived. Perfect in every way. When he died on a cross in our place, 
paying the price for the things we've done we shouldn't have done and for the good things we should have done and we didn't. And in particular, may I say, our, our breaking of the first and greatest commandment. That is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Identified as a great commandment by Jesus himself. That means, of course, that with every beat of your heart and every breath you take, Christ is to be first. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment. So in other words, even if you haven't broken the, all the rest of the bad things on the list, but you have not loved the Lord your God, you have broken the law. And may I say, we do it with great regularity. Which of us can say with every beat of my heart, every moment of consciousness, I am loving the Lord my God? No, we tend to love someone else. Primarily me. I mean you. Uh, ourselves, don't we? we? We tend to love ourselves first, even more than God, more than we would love him. And there, there is sin there is sin. So even those who say, well, I haven't, I haven't done all the bad ones, say, ah, but you've done the worst, haven't you? You have failed to love the Lord your God with every breath you've taken. And there you've broken the great commandment and are desperately in need of a savior. So Christ died on the cross as our savior, a redeemer, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and the Bible says, will come again. Now that's the other part of this text. His second coming now, rapture of the church, right? You've heard me say I identify uh, my theology, even as we talk about different types of theology. I believe in a return of Christ for his saints, often called the rapture of the church. And I believe there's another coming described in Zechariah 14, verse 4, where his feet come again to the Mount of Olives. And I think that's described in Scripture. But the second half, then, is going to look toward his second coming. But I want you to look with me at this this first part that goes along with his first coming, where Jesus says, this is about me. And I just want to remember with you, these are things Jesus says that he does. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. Anointing in the Old Testament was that which was done for a prophet, priest, or king, typically, but it was marking them as a special tool of God's hand. Christ himself, of course, the greatest prophet, priest, and king, not pick one, all of those, as the book of Hebrews tells us. He was, he was the prof, greatest prophet, greater prophet than Moses, greater priest than the Levitical priest, greater king than David, okay? The greatest prophet, priest, king, anointed, set apart by God the Father to do these things, to bring good news to the poor. Christ is good news, good news. Sent me, Jesus says, to bind up the brokenhearted. And I love that phrase because which of us has not been that at some point in our life? Christ comes to come alongside the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. People are captives or they are bound in a variety of ways, sometimes with literal chains, bonds, as you know from history or from contemporary things in other parts of the world. Sometimes we're in different types of, of prisons. Sometimes we're held captive to other things or objects or substances, aren't we? Those things can captivate as well. Christ comes to deliver, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound and know it. Of course, the year of the Lord's favor, forgiveness available through him. And I want to highlight, as I have here on your sermon notes, God's redemption is not primarily a program 
Or, or you'd say a plan. Oh, yes, there's a program. Yes, there's a plan. I know that. But I'm, I'm wanting to press on this, that the ultimate expression of God's redemption is a purpose, is a person, rather, Messiah Jesus. People speak about Christianity sometimes as a system or a religion or something. I, I understand what is meant by that, but I, I press hard to say it's Jesus, see? It's Christ himself. Christ doesn't just come and say, well, work at it a little harder. Be nicer, Okay. No, he comes and he brings himself, his presence, the presence of Christ, a savior, a redeemer, not just a book to study. Oh, believe me, I'm all about that. But, but the book points us to Christ, points us to a redeemer. As we'll see in a minute, uh, the, the writer says, Lord, your name is, your name is redeemer. That's who you are. So the, the, the Bible presses us not just to a system or a doctrinal statement, as important as those are, it presses us to Christ himself. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. Maybe it was years ago you prayed a prayer, trusted Christ as your Savior, and you get into the Christian system and you forget about Jesus. Right? It, it, it happens. It happens. We get so used to just kind of Christian patterns, and, and we're not that close with Jesus. And the Bible always calls us, the gospel always calls us, first of all, to a person. It's a person of Jesus Christ. So don't ever lose, lose sight of that, all right, please? Now, the rest of the chapter, uh, looking at that second coming of Jesus, that's when it's especially fulfilled. You'll remember, and you'll notice as I read some of this, the nations and the nation. I believe that there is a future for national Israel. You've heard me address this. I'm not afraid to spell it out or call it out. I realize that there are different systems of theology. I've done my homework. I'm aware. Uh, but nonetheless, I believe that in God's, God's plan for the future, that there is still a place for the nation of Israel for a season of restoration yet to come. And I, I think I can defend that, at least uh, from, from these texts. Book of Isaiah, of course, is, is a big part of that. Looking at a future for Israel that we have not seen in history, but the Bible describes that would seem to indicate yet to come. So by practical, as I have on my sermon notes here, I am meaning it looks a certain way. So I'm going to pick up the reading again, chapter 2, or chapter 61, verse 2, in the middle there, and read down a ways. And I want you to see the emphasis on a restored nation here, okay? So verse 2 then, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, first coming, and the day of vengeance of our God. Don't forget that phrase. You'll see it again. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Or if you know the song, a spirit of heaviness, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, right? Havana you know this, come on. Um, you sung it. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall come, or shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, and you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Now, as, as you read along, if you were with us last week, some of that will sound familiar to chapter 60, and it is. You find this, this kind of a scenario repeated in these latter chapters of the book of Isaiah. 
where God seems to be speaking of, a, of another day when ancient ruins and things that are broken down are made alive again, ruined cities restored, and the wealth of the nations coming, coming home, so to speak, coming. We saw, as we saw last week, and as I took uh, my theological position, uh, to the nation of Israel for a different future than what we see today. Restored to the land, we mentioned this last week, the miracle of, of the nation of Israel being reborn in 1948, something people didn't really believe was going to happen for, oh, I don't know, 1948 years or thereabouts, uh, minus 70 from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But, but nonetheless, restored to the land, not a spiritual restoration yet, restored to Christ. But I think that's spoken of, and I look for that. I think that day will come as well in what is yet future. But I believe that this is describing God's work in rebuilding and restoring uh, a broken-down nation. Some of this, I think, happening immediately as God's people came back from Babylonian captivity. But I still think there's a future. You remember us talking about biblical prophecy? I hope you remember these things, because as we go through the Bible, we want to we be better Bible students all the time. Um, many times in Bible prophecy, events that are separated by, by years are crunched together. We've referenced that many times, that you'll have several things kind of packed together. It sounds like it's this, 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 this in order. But in reality, there's a separation. And there might be years in between something. We saw this as we studied a number of years of the Olivet Discourse with Jesus. Future events kind of woven together. And as we just read in Isaiah 61, uh, chapter 61, verse 2, kind of presses together. First coming and second coming. And until Jesus stopped in the middle of the verse and sat down, you wouldn't know that it was separated. But it was, and he knew it. And so you see some of it here, some of it yet to come. Wow. So I want you to see then, not only the restoring of a nation, I just want to call out a couple of things here. As, as we normally do in reading or studying a bigger text, I don't read all of it, but portions of it, and encourage you to read the rest of it in your study time. But verse 7, do you see what's here? Instead of your shame... There shall be a double portion. Double portion means extra blessing, often reserved for a firstborn or some type of celebration. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Shame and honor, shame and dishonor, uh, set here, uh, opposed or in opposite position, juxtaposed against one another uh, with, with respect and honor. Certainly that's true for the nation of Israel when it's restored, a restoring of honor. But listen to me, um, in, many, in many cultures, uh, there is an honor-shame system. Okay? Many cultures around the world use honor and shame in, in, a, in a special way. Um, some of the Asian cultures do that. Some of us are a part of those Asian cultures, and you know what I'm talking about. But we do it too here in America. We do it too. Sometimes people feel shame, or we shame them for things they've done that they shouldn't have done. And you carry that with you the rest of your life. Shame. I was raised in the generation when a mom or a dad or a school teacher would look at a kid and say, what is it? Yeah, you heard, shame on you, they used to say, for awful crimes. I mean, chewing gum and running in the halls. And the teacher would pop out of the room and go, shame on you, young man. They'd go, wow, this must have been awful. I mean, shame, shame is on me. I ran. It was terrible. And I chewed gum at the same time. Awful. Oh, my goodness. But shame is not a small thing, is it? If you've ever felt it, the brand on your forehead, one who did this, or your family this. Um, shame. I remember feeling that myself growing up because we were the family who came without a dad. He stayed home. 
So we would always come. My mom would have us sit there, youngest next to her, so she could kind of, you know, smack you a little bit if need be. But I remember the, the shame of that, feeling it. Maybe nobody said it or did anything about it, but I felt it. Here were all these others in spiritually intact families, and then there's us. And I just, I always felt it. You know, wow, here we come. Can we get out of here yet? I felt shame because I knew we weren't like other people. Um, honor and shame. Here, here, honor. Honor restored. Child of God. Work of redemption. Amazing. Now, again, moving on, I highlight verse 8. God says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I'm going to talk about that under our next section. I think that's introducing the theme that we'll see in 62. But I go to, to chapter 61, verse 10. If you go here, please. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I think this is the prophet responding to what God has said. My soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Do you hear this? What an amazing text uh, describing uh, the work of redemption. That's what this chapter is about, God's redemption. A person, it's Jesus, and it's practical. It's, it's, it's changing a culture, and it's changing people, removing shame. And here you see God covering us with the robe of righteousness, which I think in New Testament terms is a wonderful spelling out of what happens. Listen, when a person trusts Christ as Savior, this is, this is the idea, you know, right from the story of the prodigal son, or we would properly say, I think, the prodigal sons, because there were two, there were two boys whose hearts were not aligned with the heart of the father. You remember this? We talk about the one guy who ran away. Uh, the older son at home was pretty self-righteous too. He was a prodigal in a whole different way. But the young guy took off, didn't he? He ran, wasted his father's inheritance, ended up in a, as a good Jewish boy feeding pigs, ran out of food, pig slop was starting to look good, said, I'm going home to my daddy, maybe he'll just hire me, and there's no report along the way of a shower along, maybe there was a stream or a river, he cleaned up a little bit, we're not told, but here he comes up the road, his head hung in, shame, and a good dignified Jewish dad did what a good dignified Jewish dad didn't do, run. And he sees his son from afar, his eyes obviously on the road, and he probably hitches up his robes and runs to that boy. And what's he do? As he welcomes him home, wraps a robe around him, covering his shame. See, bring the best robe, bring rings for his fingers, kill the fatted calf, celebration time, this son of mine was lost, now is found. Wraps the robe around him to cover his, his, his filthiness and his shame. It's, it's a look at what God does when he covers us with the righteousness of Christ because that's the gospel, you know. That when, when we trust Christ as our Savior, the guilt of our sin it goes to Christ on the cross and it's his righteousness from his perfect life. His righteousness was wrapped around us as a robe. We're covered by the righteousness of Christ. You see, that's the gospel. And I think, I think this text lays the groundwork for all that is to come in the New Testament. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. And we look back at that and say, yes, exactly what Jesus does. Thank you so much. So God's redemption, chapter 61. Now I move quickly then, that next section, God's justice involves his people and it involves the nations. There are two parts to this section, okay? Chapter 62 is, is kind of one section dealing with God's people, justice for God's people. The first six verses of chapter 63 deal with God's justice for the nations, 
All right? Now, I mentioned that chapter 61, verse 8, introduces this theme. Indeed, I think it does. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. That's pretty clear. I love this. I hate that. Now, I want to say this, please. And I, I, it's worthy of much more conversation than we can give it today. Today, we hear a lot about justice, don't we? Issues of justice, global justice, equity, and all kinds of things. Now, the Bible uh, presents God as a God who loves justice. But let me say this. It's justice biblically defined. And I hope that you are a discerning person as you uh, hear discussions of of justice and equity in today's world. I hope you are listening with your biblically discerning ears on because there are many things shoved into that category of justice that are biblically wrong. They don't meet, they don't meet the test of Scripture. People today often push things over and say, justice demands this. And if you're biblically educated, you'll say, uh-uh, hold on. No, that disagrees with the Bible. It isn't that the Bible disagrees with you. You disagree with God. That isn't an issue of justice. Over here may be an issue of justice, but this is an issue of sin that you're trying to sneak in over here and calling it justice. So that's, that, that shouldn't fly for God's people, okay? So be, be aware that today, not everything called a pursuit of justice today is a pursuit of biblical justice. I'm all about biblical justice. I am not all about a lot of the things that today you hear in culture as, well, this is an issue of justice and fairness and equity. This should, and you go, hold on, hold on, time out. Let's go to the Word of God and take a look, okay? Some of those things are just flat-out sin, and don't say that that should be an issue of equity. Wrong, wrong. In this text, though, God says he loves justice. Now, in chapter 62, you find some things about justice. So I want to begin reading this, and you'll, you'll see what I mean here. God's dealing with justice with his people. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name by a new name. In the Bible, often new names are given when a person turns over a new leaf or God is doing something new. You'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land, again, I think it's speaking specifically of land, your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. That's a very interesting figure of speech, but explained in the next verse. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So it's looking ahead to a day of God's favor in a very evident way when God again restores and blesses the nation of Israel in an unprecedented way. And again, I press on the, the Israel and Jerusalem part and continue to read in verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he is establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Okay, stop for a moment here. Some of these elements are, are certainly culturally 
um, a fitting, but we don't understand them because we don't have watchmen anymore, do we? The old days, you have city with walls and so on. You'd have watchmen on the walls, and their job was to, well, uh, watch. Yes, that's, that's what it was. Because back in the day, before radar and airplanes and drones and helicopters and any sense of what's going on, you never knew when the bad guys were going to come, and you wanted to have a little bit of warning. So if the army's coming and they're two hills over, you're hoping somebody will get an idea of that and tell you. And the watchmen would yell, and the, arm, the soldiers would come, the army would form, and you're ready. So the watchmen were critical. The watchmen are on the walls, and they're keeping track. And in this case, this analogy, they're never silent. They're crying out. They're crying out to whom? Well, in this context, crying out to God. Continually, they're giving him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. In other words, they're crying out, God, do it. Do what you said. Bring the day of restoration. Restore Jerusalem. Restore Israel. These are watchmen. We often think of this in some circles. Um, if you are a prayer-oriented person, often this text or others like it are mentioned to remind people to pray. Intercessory prayer. It's kind of like the watchmen. People watching, paying attention, and crying out to God. Not just paying attention to criticize, but watching and paying attention to what's going on around us for the purpose of seeking God. That's a legitimate thing. And if that's the the, the ministry that God has given your heart, bless you for it and do it well. Be that intercessor. As you see the problems in the world, instead of just saying, and it's awful, point could be made, cry out to God on behalf of those things and the people involved in God's work of redemption. So that's a wonderful thing. That's the idea here. The watchmen are crying out to him. I love that. Now, verse, verse 12 then, again, Uh, this business of restoration, this business of justice on behalf of his people, they shall be called then in this day the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I think this is describing the work of God, certainly in the nation of Israel, in a way that we have not yet seen it in history. And that's the best way I can put that. And I think there's still coming a day when God again will deal with his people I look for that from all kinds of places in the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Book of Revelation, certainly, I think, all point to that day, okay? Now, uh, from the middle of chapter 63, beginning with verse 7, there's another shift. And I put this under my third heading, okay? God's mercy is abundant and freely given. And there's a shift. First of all, in chapter 63, 7 through 14, there's, there's a, a, a section describing what God is like, why you would turn to him, what is he like, and then what follows is a crying out to him. So here, first then, in verse 7 of 63, the writer says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you what he's like. Here's what he's like. I'll recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, people, our children, who will not deal falsely. He became their savior. In their affliction, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Isn't that an interesting phrase? In all their affliction, he was afflicted too. In other words, God is not dispassionate. He's not disconnected. So when you go through rough times, 
God doesn't just say, oh, stop it. How about that? Wouldn't that be great? Every time you dialed heaven and said, God, I'm in such agony, and God just sent a text back saying, just stop it. You'd say, wow, but wait. And he doesn't do that, does he? No, you're going to get it. You dial up heaven in a time of distress, you will meet, be met by a compassionate and kind father. See, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up, carried them all the days of old. And then you find a paragraph about rebellion. But even with that, they rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Wow, God disciplined them. He did. That story is told. He redeemed them yet again. All of those, the next few verses are like this. Like, like livestock, verse 14, like cattle that go down into the valley. It's where the good grass is, I'm told. Not by a cow, but by others. <laughs> livestock, they go down into the valley, well watered. This says the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Just like a, a livestock nowhere to go, the Spirit of the Lord gives rest. Which I love. I love that phrase. The Spirit of the Lord. I pray it as well. Lord, give me rest. My spirit, my heart. Give me rest. Now, in verse 15, there's the shift. Okay, another one. You just got to watch these things as you read the Bible. And starting in 6315, there's a prayer. This is a crying out to God for mercy. And by the way, there is a whole, um, a whole series of teachings you can look at all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end about people crying out to God. Did you know that? You'll find this often in the Psalms. You'll find some of the prophets of old, some of the various kings, that in a moment of difficulty, they cried out to God. They cried out to God, which is something you should do too, is learn how to cry out to God. There are many things you can get advice about. Somebody else can help you with this or that, but there are many, many other things, I would, I would argue, the most important things that you just take straight to the Lord. Because he is the only one who can address that need. He is the only one who really understands every bit, every bit of your heart as the one crying out to him. You try to express yourself to others and they try to get it, but only God sees exactly what's going on inside of you. And so we cry out to God as to a caring, loving father, and he hears. Uh, Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Isn't that good? The righteous cry, and the Lord hears him, saves him out of all his troubles. Taste and see that the Lord is good. All of those come from the same place in the Psalms. Wow, I love that. Learn to cry out to God. So this writer is crying out to God. I just want you to hear the tone here, starting 6315. This, this plea for mercy, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inward parts and your compassion are being held back from me. In other words, God, meet us here. Please don't ignore us. You're our father. Though Abraham does not know us, Israel does not acknowledge us. In other words, if, if, even if people forget us, you, O oh Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. This is who you are, God. Meet us. Meet us here. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Harden our heart so that we fear you not. Lord, how can it be? How could I have been so far away? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance or your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Lord, this is the honest truth about where we're at. We look like a run over by a bus my translation of verse 18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
There's a song, God of heaven, come down. Come, that's where it came from. It's Isaiah 64. God of heaven, come down. Meet with us here as you did in days of old. That's where the beginning of 64 goes. Really honest here, verse 5. Look at the middle. You were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? I mean, what's the hope? Well, here's the honesty. We've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Just, just honest. Verse 8. Oh Lord, you're our father. We're the clay, you're the potter. We're all the work of your hands. Don't be angry, oh Lord. This, this whole section is a beautiful plea. Oh God, you see my need. I'm not hiding a thing. I'm bringing it to you. You see every bit of it. You see all my need, all the foolishness of my own heart. Oh God, here it is. Please meet me here. It's a crying out to God. It's a powerful section. Uh, if you just pick it up at 15, uh, verse 15 in chapter 63 and read the whole thing, thing through, man, what a passionate plea from a, a, a heart of faith that says, Lord, meet me in my problem, meet me in my need. So I gave you a number of other things here. God's mercy only valued by those who need it, who know they need it, rather, those who know they need it. I give you some other things to look at, key sections. Be sure to go back and read these. But I want to, I want to go back to my opening illustration with this book, and I want to take the mercy of God and make it very personal to you, if I can do that, with the help of another but the mercy of God is, 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 the, is the request. Uh, you're our father. Uh, dad's delight, what is it? It's to show mercy. Well, here's the thing. Uh, this little book um, it tells you one, one story, one little glimpse from a young boy by the name of Hank when he's six years old. Um, that would be 1993. It's a true story. Okay? In 1994, some of you will remember the news account because it covered the whole country the news account of this family. Because in 1994, uh, mom and dad, uh, Janet, yep, Janet and Scott, a pastor in Chicago, nine kids, they're traveling on the highways of Wisconsin with their youngest six. And a truck ahead of them who was, that was driven by a guy who got his license through a bribe um, it lost a 90-pound piece of metal. You're going at freeway speeds. This piece of metal pops off the truck. No place for the van to avoid it. And Janet and Craig hope they miss it. or hope it, Anyway, drive over it. Well, that piece of metal, 90-pound piece of metal, did two terrible things. One is it punctured their gas tank. And because it was a big hunk of metal, it started throwing sparks right away. And their van erupted in a fireball in a second freeway speeds. They, you know, mom and dad are gas and they're on fire as well, trying to get off the road. Uh, instantly, cars around them are stopping to render aid, get the flames off mom and dad in this terrible moment, rescue the kids. They get one kid out and it's clear um, that any more effort will be futile. Mom's still trying to go. Dad's hanging on to her saying, don't, don't go. They're with the Lord. They're already with the Lord. Let it stop. They get the one child, they go to the hospital, uh, a little guy, he, he lived uh, just a short time and he died. So, so in one fell swoop, one awful moment, you, you, you go from, a, from nine children to three who were not with them. You lose six on the side of a road in a moment. That was 1994. 
Okay, true story. I remember this in the news. I remember hearing that. The whole nation thinking, oh, what a horrible thing. What are the chances of that? Minuscule. But for Craig and Janet, it was real. It was real. So what do you do with a broken heart like that? What we just said is you cry out to God for his mercy on a grieving and broken heart. And that's what she did because this book was written 12 years later reflecting on the life of little Hank who was in the car. Uh, The accident happened when he was seven. This story is when he was six. So they're telling stories later. And to, to read her accounts, God was so merciful in caring for a mom's heart in the worst possible scene. Their story is a story of mercy. While some would spend the rest of their life angry at God, Janet and Craig are meeting with the merciful God who walks with broken people in whatever kind of need and cares for their heart. And that's the message of their books and their life today. I I found it interesting. The reason I got onto this, of course, is I read the little back part where it says, Janet and her husband Scott live near Nashville, Tennessee. They're grateful to God for their nine children and 25 grandchildren. You go, wait a minute, 25 from three who remain? Yeah, apparently they had some babies. They're grateful to God for their nine children. Six with the Lord and three on this earth. So I, I, it caused me to think through this book a little different, A Dad's Delight, to return again to texts like this that show a a heart crying out to God uh, that, that we can do as well. You're a believer, cry out to him. Not a believer, apart from him, cry out in in faith and trust Christ as your Savior. And remember the words as they gave us from the end of the book, Micah 7, verse 8, who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace so rich and free? Who has grace so rich and free? There was a song written about that. That's why I know it. Um, Who is a pardoning God? That song's called... uh, Great God of Wonders. Great God didn't make the cut in most modern hymnals, but it's based on Micah 7, 8, the mercy of God. I'd like to pray for us. You'd stand with me. I'd like to pray and then just say a word afterwards. Father, you are indeed a merciful God. Nowhere is that more evident than in the moment that Jesus died on the cross as our Savior. That moment when Jesus was suspended on that cross, when the weight of the world, the weight of the sin of the world placed on his shoulders in our place, your mercy was never more evident than at that moment. Thank you that your mercy is real today toward all who call upon you. Our Father, would you give each of us a, a delight in you Uh, the light in you, the God who grants mercy. And I pray that each of us who has, whether issues of pain or difficulty that others know or things that we carry that few others know, Father, be to us this great God of mercy. Be that to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.